Welcome to Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And now for your weekly recap, a timely review of this week's top headlines and takeaways. Here's your host. Welcome to Inside Towers Week in Review. I'm Leslie Stimson, Inside Towers Washington Bureau Chief. With me are John Celentano, our business editor, and Sharp Smith, our technology editor. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence. It's a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. Intelligence looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. The 2023 Volume 4 is in production. An annual subscription also includes an exclusive briefing and online support. For more information or to subscribe, visit InsightTowers.com slash intelligence. John, you're going to talk to us about the Canadian Spectrum auction, I think, right? Hi, Leslie. Yep. Um, Canada, like uh, other countries around the world, um, is is auctioning uh, mid-band spectrum for 5G. Um, the Canadian government um, ran an, uh, a 3,800 megahertz auction uh, that concluded at the end of November. Um, 3,800 megahertz actually covers from uh, <clears throat> um, uh, 3,650 to 3,900 megahertz. It overlaps with part of the U.S. C-band uh, spectrum. But uh, why it's significant is that it's actually offer the auction offered uh, 250 megahertz. Uh, broken up into 25 unpaired contiguous blocks of 10 megahertz. And, um, you know, this is a pretty sizable chunk of uh, spectrum to make available to the mobile network operators. So uh drew a lot of attention. There were actually 20 winners in the auction, but true to form, the big three mobile network operators in Canada, uh, Rogers, Bell, and TELUS, you know, took the lion's share of both um, uh, the number of... Um, licenses uh almost 80 percent of the total uh and uh, they spent about 75 percent of the total that was uh brought in at the auction which um uh, garnered about 1.6 billion for the canadian government so mm. there were actually 4300 licenses offered and 4099 were acquired and the, the you know that the, the un, unsold spectrum still is held by the government but um you know it's significant because it allows the um the operators to move ahead with uh, their 5G plans to deliver high speed services uh, using this wide midband spectrum um it really dovetails into a spectrum that was held in July of 2021 for 35 mega uh, the 3500 megahertz band that was actually a 200 megahertz uh, from 3450 to 3650 megahertz that they made available then but some of those licenses were already assigned so of the 200 megahertz they, they actually only average uh, sold an average of 111 megahertz but you know it got a lot of interest and it raised a lot of money it actually raised 6.6 billion that's so, so you know you're you're talking a, a pretty fair multiple over with this auction raised um Is that and u.s dollars that's all in U.S. Though I did the yeah. <laughs> I did the translation, um, but um, you know, so uh, some analysts in Canada attributed to the higher costs, uh, uh, the higher dollar value of the 35 megahertz auction because of 
a couple of factors. One, that the amount of spectrum being made available was much less than what the 3,800 megahertz auction offered. So this scarcity of demand, uh, um, of supply uh, drove the demand. Uh, there were 50 megahertz blocks that were set aside for smaller regional bidders. And so that left the amount of spectrum in the, in, for the national carriers, um, again, you know, created a scarcity given the demand in some markets. And, and there was also, um, a hundred megahertz spectrum cap um, in the thirty-eight megahertz auction. That uh, when you combined with uh, thirty, the thirty-five megahertz, thirty-five hundred megahertz auction, it, it um, um, you know a lot of a lot of the big carriers already held some of that spectrum. So uh, it, that that was sort of the rationale behind why the this latest auction you know drew less money than the prior. But nonetheless. It it gives uh, all the players involved a pretty good footprint in terms of um, where they can deploy and how much spectrum they have to work with in each of those markets. So I, I'll give you a quick rundown of, of what the leaderboard looked like. Um, TELUS, which is headquartered in Vancouver, British Columbia, actually picked up the, the lion's share of license of over 1,400, mm -hmm. and they spent something like $457 million to cover 33 million of Canada's 39 million people. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, Rogers um, uh, Wireless, based in Toronto, spent 350 million for 860 licenses, but those licenses actually cover more people, about 35 million. Um, and in the middle is Bell Mobility, um, which is the wireless operation of Bell Canada. Uh, the, they picked up the company picked up uh, 939 licenses for about 382 million and covered just a little under what Rogers covers. So what it does is gives these operators nationwide coverage in the mid band. Um, and oh, okay, you know Rogers is the true the only true nationwide carrier that has its own infrastructure coast to coast. Telus and Bell actually get into a, a, an infrastructure sharing arrangement in the respective parts of the country, um, but they do own their own spectrum in those in those markets. So, and then you had some interesting smaller players. Videotron, for instance, um, uh, acquired Freedom Mobile as part of the Rogers Shaw merger approval, uh, and that gave um, Videotron, which is basically a cable operator in Quebec, which oh. has wireless. Mm -hmm. uh, in in that market, but with the with acquiring Freedom Mobile, they picked up properties in Western Canada, and so they spent uh, 220 million for about 305 licenses to um, to expand into um, you know their their home market in Quebec into Southern Ontario, uh, Manitoba in the Midwest, and then British Columbia and Alberta West. Um, Kojiko, which is, which is another uh, Montreal-based uh, service provider, with it has cable operations, you know, in the in the highly populated Windsor, Ontario to Quebec City corridor. They picked up 99 licenses uh, for about 140 million. And then uh, last among the the top bidders was um, uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia-based Bragg Communications, which operates as Eastlink. They picked up 187 licenses for just seven million, but <clears throat> You know, they're covering a lot of small towns and uh, small cities and towns on the East Coast and central Ontario and parts of Alberta. So it's an interesting mix of players. And I think it um, 
you know, like the U.S., there is a concentration among, among the big three national carriers, but um, there's a lot of uh, regional players that have benefited by this auction as well. So it'd be interesting to see um, how the, how it plays out and how they how they end up building out those licenses over the next few years. So does the Canadian government, I mean, they had this big auction. Is there any other spectrum in their auction pipeline that they're are they planning another auction anytime soon, or is this it for a while? No, well, you know, they're looking at millimeter wave spectrum. Um, that that is coming up next. Um, I'm, they don't I haven't put a timeline on at least that I'm aware of. But um, yeah, they continue to look for uh, opportunities to make spectrum available, and. Um, um, but I think these these two big swaths were ones they wanted to get on the block and uh, make available to the carriers because they, uh, you know, the carriers already operate in, in low band, right? 600 and 700 meters with their LTE networks. But um, this mid-band spectrum gives them uh, the same kind of capabilities as uh, the carriers in the U.S. Uh, and the, because the frequencies are similar, there's a lot of cross-border capability. You know, you don't have to you can you can overlap that spectrum uh, 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 and and you for roaming purposes without having to use different devices in each market so you know it's interesting you're talking about the cross-border capabilities in broadcasting most of the broadcasters in canada are clustered along the u.s border because yeah. that's where the majority of the canadian population is true but for telecom they have to cover the entire country, right? I mean, how do they? Well, well, yeah, but still, if you look at the maps, you'll see that a lot of the licenses are covering that that narrow stretch of land close to the border. But there are a lot of there's a lot of um, underserved areas well into the heart of the country that are uh, the licenses will cover as well. <clears throat> so you get both the national carriers and the regional carriers will serve those uh, those targeted markets, but. Um, now they have the spectrum to do it before they didn't. So, Sharp, uh, you and John wanted to talk about the, the big AT&T Ericsson deal that happened. And you had a follow on with um, uh, with John Stanky of AT&T. But um, I think, John, you're going to start us off. Is that right? Uh, yeah, Leslie, I, there were shockwaves sent across the, the, the industry this week when AT&T made an announcement that they were going to award a $14 billion five-year contract to Ericsson to deploy open RAN architecture in AT&T's network, <clears throat> uh, which is fine. You know, this is a great move. Um, the open RAN crowd has been clamoring for some time that... <clears throat> The big carriers have been locked into proprietary architectures by the, you know, the Scandinavian mafia, uh, Ericsson and Nokia. But, um, you know, Open RAN is gaining traction as a viable uh, network architecture. Uh, the only thing up to now, it's been promoted by a number of smaller players and the Open RAN Alliance that um, is trying to develop an ecosystem for that. But to have a major carrier like AT&T commit to it um, uh, really is a vote of confidence in the technology. The problem was that Nokia was shut out of that deal. Uh, Nokia is not going to supply, at least in the short term, 
not going to be a partner or a supplier to AT&T for open RAND design products. Rather, AT&T is leaning on Ericsson as its primary supplier and in bringing in Fujitsu as a secondary supplier for the uh, open RAND radios. <clears throat> so this has created quite a quite a kerfuffle in in the industry. What you know, a lot of speculation of well, why did Nokia get shut out? Uh, were there problems with their products? Uh, what does it mean for the company? You know, and and Nokia, you know, very stoically said, well, you know, we're committed to open RAN designs and uh, we're continuing our R&D program and AT&T is a great customer of ours. You know, by the way, Nokia has been selling to AT&T for decades and they have a huge install base of products that is, they're going to have to continue to maintain and operate. But, and, you know, years ago when the Bell, the Bell system broke up and, 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 and Lucent was acquired by Alcatel, Nokia bought Bell Labs, you know, so there's a, there's a long uh, uh, history between the two companies and that won't go away anytime soon. But I thought it was interesting that um, uh, AT&T made this declaration uh, and then uh, as Sharp picked up on, they kind of backpedaled a little bit, Sharp. Um, and- yeah, John, uh, it was, uh, it was interesting listening to, uh, to John Stenke uh, at the, uh, um, uh, during the uh, uh, UBS Global TMT uh, conference, uh, uh, basically he he attempted to downplay the whole thing and uh, uh, was uh, saying, you know, it's it's really not that big a deal. It's only fourteen billion dollars over five years, which equates to only two point eight uh, annually. Which I figured that out myself. But uh, and he said it's much less than the 24 billion that we invest on our net- network annually. And uh, and then he uh, he went on to uh, uh, say, you know, we these are two good uh, vendors. Uh, they're very good suppliers. They both have done good work for us. They both have really good equipment. And uh, so it's like he's answering everything that you just said there about. Uh, you know the the rumor mill, and uh, um, and I think uh, uh, it's the uh, the interesting thing is it uh, it might it might get back to what uh, John's been talking about for a while is that the uh, uh, what these these uh, these open systems need is they need a an integrator. And, uh, and AT&T doesn't want to be in the integration business. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, you know, there have been some uh, side talk about maybe Ericsson's real role was going to be as, a, as the integrator. And, uh, uh, and they'll, you know, bring in, bring in the other vendors. And uh, uh, there's also been talk that AT&T has been uh, laying some people off and they've been those people have been hired by Ericsson. So uh, the, uh, that relationship might be sort of a, more of an inter, you know, might be an integration uh, relationship as well as, as, a, as a vendor relationship. So, uh, uh, so yeah, um, I, I, w- I want to look into the future, uh, uh, you know, further to see if, uh, if, 
if the air, if the AT and T's, uh, if their their announcement is going to be sort of the, you know, the 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 key to uh, uh, unlocking the the potential of of Open RAN because so far there've been you know a lot of announcements, but uh, you know if you look at what NEC was saying just last week uh, that you know they were slashing their their uh, 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 revenue expectations for 2024 mm -hmm. by hundreds of millions of dollars, mm -hmm. and uh, you know and uh, so that that got a lot of tongues wagging as as to uh, you know. You know, what's what's going on with uh, with uh, with open ran and that type of thing so uh, you know probably the key to this not being an expert but seems like common sense would say um, the big boys need to play in uh, in open ran for it to it can't be just a small a small uh, vendor. Uh, play if it's really going to uh, to to work. Yeah, that that's right, uh, Sheriff. My, you know, my my big question all along is when I I look at a dish or a, a one and one in in Germany or even Rakuten Rakuten in uh, Japan. Um, you know, the question is who's got the point? Who pulls it all together? In Dish's case, they realized if they were going to be successful, they had to be their own systems integrator. And I don't think forcing a customer, any customer to do become its own systems integrator is really sustainable. This is kind of a unique situation. They, they had specific bogeys to meet in terms of coverage and they knew they couldn't do it any, they couldn't rely on any one vendor to get them there. So they just said, well, we'll do it ourselves. And they had a really good team that they put together. And so they managed that, but that's not, I don't think that's the template for open RAN going forward. I think what you're referring to is Ericsson, a large vendor being a systems integrator is more likely how this will play out. And, uh, and the, the carriers will rely on one, maybe a second uh, of their, their primary vendors to, to pull it all together. So John, did, Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was going to say you, you attended a local wireless uh, meeting last night. Mm -hmm. What were some of the top questions you were hearing from people about this deal? What are they curious about? Well, there was a lot of speculation about where this may end up, but um, I think the um, there was sort of a, um, a a recognition to say, oh, okay, well, you know, we we kind of figured something like this would happen, but there were really a lot of questions about. Nokia and what happened with Nokia and how did they end up in the situation that they ended up um, and with no clear answers, really, uh, just more speculation. It's interesting. And Sharp, you picked up on it in your article where we talked about Nokia said, look, uh, at and is only five to eight percent of our total revenues. And the in North America is only like 25 percent of our global revenues. As if to say, well, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's an important customer, but, um, you know, it's not our only customer. Although they did acknowledge over the next several years, their their revenues will decline because of that. So uh, you have to keep it all in context, I think. There's no one clear-cut answer as to which way this could go and 
what the rationale behind it is. It's it's all kind of relative. And what Sharp said about Stanky's comments, you know, he kind of couched a lot of what he the initial announcement referred to. But I think you know the, he did that because there's no definitive answers. It's it's all kind of relative, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Nokia is not out of the picture by any means, but for this part of it, the initial phase, they they obviously will not will not be a supplier. It's interesting. Um, I have one point to add about DISH that the FCC approved their, um, I mean, we know they're going to merge with EchoStar, go into EchoStar again. Um, the FCC approved their request for all their licenses to go to EchoStar. So that happened. Um, that's what I have to say about that. That's interesting <laughs> that Chairman Ergen is still a you know the ninety percent shareholder. <laughs> yes, of both. <laughs> so you know it's just kind of a, a paper exercise, I think. But um, uh, hopefully that'll give them some uh, financial uh, uh, oomph to carry on because uh, they're they're struggling right now. Yeah, it, it's funny in the order the FCC said, given they went through the whole who owns what and who's on the boards. And they said, given the unusual circumstances, this is in quotes, we think this is in the public interest. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so in Washington, uh, the recent, there was a big oversight hearing and lawmakers are focused on the FCC's recent actions on net neutrality and digital discrimination. It dominated the agency's first oversight hearing in this term of Congress with a full complement of commissioners. And uh, at first it, it was interesting. We didn't think Gomez was going to come because of work, but she did. We badly need Congress to restore the agency's spectrum authority, said Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel. And she said there are a bunch of, this is a quote, there are a bunch of bans sitting in the closet, unquote, at the FCC that it can't act on. Um, the sale act, which would, it, it would give the FCC limited authority to release, uh, the licenses from the 2.5 gigahertz auction. If I'm remembering right, that the Senate passed its version in September, the house, this house, the house energy and commerce committee passed a different version to the full house. So we'll see how fast the full house acts on it. And then of course, it'll have to go to conference if the, so so she's still saying we need our spectrum authority. And um, she listed all the bands that they've identified. So prime mid bands, seven to 16 gigahertz have been identified as prime mid band airways for five and six gigahertz. And the FCC has identified spectrum below three gigahertz for auction. It completed a study on that. Uh, Congress completed a study that calls for that spectrum below three gigahertz to be auctioned in 2024. She was asked if they're ready, and she said no, because they're waiting uh, for NTIA to deliver their report on this study to the FCC. And she said, um, we can't unless we know what spectrum they would like us to work with. So they're kind of stuck right now on that. She emphasized restoring the FCC's auction authority this is in quotes, absolutely needs to happen, unquote. Um, and she reminded the committee, the agency has held more than 100 spectrum auctions over the past three decades and raised more than $233 billion for the U.S. Treasury. 
There was a lot of discussion about the FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program. That is expected to run out of money next April if Congress doesn't authorize more money for that. And um, everybody was saying, you know, there are 22 million households enrolled. And Rosenworcel said, we have come so far, we can't go back. If Congress fails to act, we will have to unplug households from the internet. And we will also have to tell providers they can't enroll new households. Rip and replace was a big topic too. Um, You know, the 3 billion shortfall, uh, Representative Anna Eshoo, Democrat from California, you know, she was a co-author on the bill to create rip and replace. And she intends to leave Congress when her term is up next year. She said, when we take our oath of office, Our top priority is national security. And she said she spent time on the Intelligence Committee. She knows firsthand why we need rip and replace. She said we cannot afford to have Huawei and ZTE have any foothold in U.S. networks. The other story, um, oh, and as an aside on rip and replace, so the people who are involved, the, the telecoms, don't have any more money. They got 40 cents on the dollar. And yet the FCC is reminding them their next status reports on the update of their work is due January 8th. So that's Um, switching topics. The FCC has overhauled and launched a new disaster information reporting system. It's uh, been updated to enhance security and network features to better ensure network integrity. The uh, legacy DERS system was decommissioned you can go access the new platform directly at ders.fcc.gov. The FCC plans uh, sessions or webinars on how to use the new account, uh, the new system, excuse me. Uh, they're going to do it between January 16th and 18th in the new year. So that's what I have. Sharp, do you want to talk about this? Yes. Okay, let me let me get an intelligent question to you for the tape. Um, so, Sharp, do you have any good news for Nokia? Well, yes, I do, actually. Um, the uh, uh, ABI research came out with, uh, with their report uh, on uh, the top uh, vendors, open RAN vendors, and uh, Nokia uh, came in third ahead of Ericsson. Um, and I don't know if uh, that's bittersweet or, or not, but uh, um, Mavenir was, came in number one and uh, uh, was followed by NEC, uh, the com- company that I spoke earlier that, that had such a, <laughs> a, a, a bad quarterly report. Uh, but uh, uh, these things aren't always tied together, I guess. But uh, uh, I think... Um, you know, it's, it's all about, uh, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they rank them, uh, in, in, uh, in way, in, in ways where they, they talk about innovation on one side and then implementation on the other. And, uh, and they put them on sort of a, a, a chart that way. And, um, when it comes down to, uh, uh, you know, they, they all, they, they, uh, they look at eight, uh, different open RAN vendors, including, 
uh, Fujitsu, Samsung, Parallel Wireless, and Rakuten. And uh, uh, what I thought was most interesting is, uh, is just seeing sort of a roundup of what, uh, uh, what Mavenir has been involved with. And it sort of gives you an idea, you know, reminds you that uh, uh, we talk a lot about, you know, we, we get involved in the industry hype machine and we've been talking about the growth of Open RAN and that Open RAN is coming and, and so on and so forth. But uh, um, when you look at this, it, you, it is impressive. Uh, it's a, just to quote the article, in terms of brownfield deployments, um, Mavenir has more than 57 RAN projects in 39, with 39 different customers. That includes 4G, 5G, non-standalone, standalone 5G, TDD, FDD, small cells, and private networks. All of Mavenir's 5 non-standalone, 5G non-standalone, and most of its 4G uh, deployments are brownfield, including Airtel, Deutsche Telekom, Virgin Mobile O2, o and uh, Triangle Communications. So, uh, it's it's nice to sort of see a laundry list of of the deployments and uh, and see that you know these open RAN systems really are uh, getting out there uh, and so yeah I I I I was interested in this partially just because of uh, everything that's going on with AT and T and and Ericsson and, and uh, Nokia, but it's it's nice to uh, to to get an overview and see, okay, how far how far has the whole open RAN thing? Because there's plenty of naysayers out there, you know, and you know technologically there's still people saying, you know that uh, uh, it, you know it doesn't work, but uh, you know when. When I look at how cheap the, the carriers are, you know, and how much they, you know, how many billions of dollars they put on out on on uh, spectrum, and uh, and where where else they try to uh, to cut costs so they can they can put out all this uh, deploy all this equipment. Uh, I think you know they open ran promises to allow them to lower their costs. So what about that do they not like? Well, thank you for that. I think that does it for the week. Um, thank you for listening to Inside Towers Week in review. For a complete rundown of all the week's stories, check out our Saturday edition. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.